You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. You can have a seat. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we'll be. Um, if you're new today, my name is Rodney. I'm the lead pastor here. It's great to have you. We really hope it's a blessing for you today. So Ephesians chapter 6. One of the things I, I enjoy doing as a preacher is... Uh, after I kind of get a sermon together, I love to read Charles Spurgeon. And uh, he, he just has a flair for being able to say things in ways that I could never dream about saying them. <laughs> so he's just got a real flair and a really colorful um, way of, of communicating. And so um, this week I, I read a few things on, on Ephesians 6 that he had written and specifically kind of launching us into where we're going to be today. And I want to start with, with his introduction to one of his sermons. He started like this. Like the Spartans, I already like it, right? So like the Spartans, see this is good stuff already. Like the Spartans, every Christian is born a warrior. It's his destiny to be assaulted, his duty to attack. Part of his life will be occupied with defensive warfare. He will have to defend the faith once delivered to the saints. He will, however, be an ineffective Christian if he acts only on the defensive. He must also be one who goes against his foes as well as stand still to receive their advance. And so he's right on. I mean, he, he's launching us into this idea of when, when you are born as a Christian, you are born into warfare. This is the reality of all of our lives. There is a real enemy called the devil that wages a real war with real people involved. Right? It makes it really, really difficult to live out the gospel. If you, if you've just wondered about, um, the reality of that war, just ask yourself the question, how hard is it to live out the gospel? And there's your answer to the reality of war, right? And so he, here's been one of my hopes for us as we've kind of traveled through Ephesians chapter six, is that God would start to grow in us an awareness that we are in a soul threatening conflict. That this is the reality that you and I live in. And think about the difference between what it looks like to live as a peacetime soldier and a wartime soldier. And ask yourself the question, which one does my life look like? Do I have the demeanor of wartime? Do, do I have the pace and the urgency and the expectancy of a wartime mentality? Do, do, I, do I have that in the way I view life, in the way I view finances, in the way I view my gifts and talents, my house, my family? All of these things, is it demonstrate that I have bought in to there is a soul-threatening war going on right now? Okay, so now if, if you look at these first five verses in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, those first five verses, there's one word that's mentioned four times in five verses, the word stand. And so Paul is getting at what he wants us to do as Christians and what he wants us to do in this war, in this war. That there is, there is this mandate to set up resistance and to stand firm. Okay, that's the mandate here. This is what he's saying, that you stand. Okay, so this is a couple of things that we've said over the last couple of weeks. If we want to do that effectively, if we want to be able to stand, if you don't want to be run over in the war, okay, if you want to set up resistance that works, resistance requires God's strength. And we've said this a couple of times. If you just look in verse 10, Ephesians 6.10, you see this, that we have to be strong not in us, but in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So we have to run to Jesus if we want to win this conflict. One of the ways that we've said this is that your victory is dependent upon Christ the victor. And so we've got to make sure we are running to Christ the victor who has disarmed and led these enemies in a triumphal procession. Right? A Colossians. So this is the idea that we have to run to the strength of God, strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Okay, now, now here's my problem with verse 10. That feels really abstract to me. Like when you think about, okay, well, what does it mean to strengthen yourself in the Lord? That, that has an abstract feel to it. But it's not. It's very earthy. It's very practical. Okay, in verse 11, Paul shows us the practicality of what it means to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And we do that by putting on what he calls the armor of God. 
So this is how we've said it. We've said that resisting not only requires the strength of God, but that literally means that we are running to the resources of God. That that resisting requires us to live in these God-given resources for our life. And so when you think about your life and standing in this conflict, in this war, it is dependent upon you strengthening yourself in God, meaning that you are putting on the armor of God, these God-given provision for you as a son or daughter of the king. Okay, now this is how we've tried to generally define this armor, then we'll jump in. We've generally defined the armor as gospel gifts. It's it's what God has given you and what you are in the gospel. And so this has been one of our hopes for you, is that as we travel through and kind of work through this armor, these different pieces, is that we would all learn what what we have and what we are. We would all learn some of our gospel gifts. And so as the Puritans would say, we wouldn't live below our privileges, that we would live in our privileges, right? Okay, this is the idea. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, we started this, and we, we talked about the first one, that it's fastening on the belt of truth. And we defined the, the truth as th- this joy-creating, wisdom-making, hope-sustaining scriptures that God has given us. This is a gospel gift to you, that God has given you your Bible. And we've talked about how wearing the belt of truth, fastening it on, means that that we are reading and applying, that we're thinking, meditating on the truth of Scripture. So are you doing that? Is that that a habit that you form? This reading and applying the Scriptures. Because this is the belt of truth. Last week we talked about the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness is the righteousness that we have in Christ. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5 last week, where it says that God made him who knew no sin, he's perfect to be sin for us. Our sin stacked on us was transferred onto Jesus. The condemnation we deserve stacked onto Jesus. And then here's the last part of that verse. So that his perfection, the righteousness of Christ might become ours. See, this is two sides of the gospel. Our sin stacked on Jesus, his perfection stacked on us. Isn't that a beautiful gospel reality? That, that we have, not only that we've been pardoned in the gospel, but that in the eyes of God, we have been perfected in the gospel. Okay, this is the breastplate of righteousness. Putting that on means that we are, are doing daily gospel discovery, that we're learning about what we have and what it means to be righteous in, in Christ. And it means that we do the daily task of gospel preaching, right? Okay, so this launches into where we're going to be today. Look at verse 15. The next piece of armor. Verse 15 says this, And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So this is remedy number three. The remedies in this war, ways that we can stand, this armor of God, strengthening ourselves in God. This remedy are, are these shoes of the gospel of peace. Okay, so think, think with me here through what Paul's saying. He is in a prison, and, and he is hanging these great gospel truths on, on a Roman soldier readied for war. And he's looking at the attire of a soldier and he's saying, what, what would, what would this gospel of peace, what would it be similar to? And he looks at this Roman soldier's shoes and he makes this connection. Okay, so think about what a Roman soldier's shoe was good for. Okay, you've got one piece of a shoe. Okay, picture yourself in combat, right? One piece of a shoe would be that it protects you. Right? It protects your feet. So if you can imagine doing battle on rough terrain, you don't want to get your foot cut, right? I mean, you, if you're a man ready for war, skillful in the art of war, and you get your big toe cut, you're in trouble, right? I mean, this is like the, the 300-pound professional athlete that gets turf toe. That's a bad day for him, right? I mean, he's literally decapitated because of his, his, his toe, right? He can't move. He can't work. And so this is the idea. It protects you. Okay, then you've got the idea of mobility. When you have shoes on, it makes you mobile. And all commentators, when they're kind of talking about this passage, talk about how Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great both won victories because of their mobility, that they could travel faster and further than their enemies would have expected for them. And so it gives you mobility. But I want you to hang on to this one, that it gives you shoes, give you a firm footing. It gives you traction. So, so these shoes would have small nails coming out of the bottom that would e- essentially operate as cleats would. That, that when you plant your foot in the ground, it stays put. It gives you a firmness, a steadiness, a sure foundation. Okay, and, and Paul's looking at this and saying, this is what the gospel of peace does for you. Now think about this in the midst of combat, 
right? Okay, if, if you're on a football field and you slip, chances are you survived. You come back to the huddle, you take the next play, right? But if you're on a battlefield and you slip, that could be your death, right? I mean, so this is ser- this is a serious matter at stake here. And he's saying that the gospel of peace makes this sure footing for you. It, it gives you a firm foundation. It, it makes these shoes for your feet that have these cleats that when you plant your foot down, makes you immovable. Look at that word in verse 15. You see that word readiness? This is what the gospel of peace gives you. It gives you this readiness, this firm foundation. Okay, that, that word readiness, it, it could have this idea of nimbleness. Maybe you could think of it this way. It gives you spiritual agility. I, I like how one pastor put it. He says it gives you spiritual athleticism. Okay, this is the idea. This is what the gospel of peace gives you. It, it makes you a hard target to hit. It gives you a lightness of foot. It gives you a firm foundation where you plant that you can take the assaults. Okay, this is what the gospel of peace gives. Okay, now we've got to do some work to make this whole thing, kind of bring it down to earth and make this make sense to you. Okay, so here's where we've got to start. This is the first thing we've got to see to see how the gospel of peace gives us this readiness, this firm foundation. Piece number one is we've got to see this, and this is a difficult one, but we've got to first see God as enemy. First piece, God is enemy. Okay, now, now and I, I want to preface this by saying that I think this is typically a hard thing to convince most American Christians to just kind of come in and out of church with because they've kind of created a God in their own image that kind of satisfies what they want God to be and not necessarily what the scriptures speak of God as being. Okay, so this is the biblical reality when we talk about God as enemy is that when we are born, we are born into a war. That's not our main problem. Our main problem is that when we're born, we're born not only into a war, but we have aligned with the wrong commander. Okay, now think about this. Picture this imagery. Is that when you align, okay, if you've got a battlefield, battle lines are clearly drawn. One army there, one army there. When you align with this army, you are automatically, by aligning, by putting on their uniform, by, by taking their guns, you are automatically declaring war on those people. You see this? That, that when you come out of the womb, you're in the war and you have aligned yourself with the wrong team, automatically declaring war on the other team. This is the biblical reality that, that we come out of the war or we come out of the womb into this war and war has been declared on God. Okay, so let me kind of make this make sense in two different angles here. When you think of this hostility between us and God, one part of this is that we have declared war on God. That we have made God our enemy. Okay, this is the reality of the scriptures. Is that when you come out of the womb, that you look at God with hostility. That you look at God with disdain. Okay, this is what it means. If you flip back a couple of chapters, this is what it means in Ephesians 2. That we're dead in our sin. We're not following God. We're following the course of this world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. This is the idea. That we have declared war on God. I like what uh, Paul Tripp says. He says, when you're born, you're born as a self-sovereignist. And you view God as a competing king in your kingdom. See the picture here? That, That when you're born, you view God as the competitor. When you're born, you would look at God and say, I know how to live life. I know what's going on. I don't know what you're saying here, but I've got this in complete control here. I need no help from you. I need no input from you. I make a pretty good king, right? This is the idea that we're all born with this hostility, this this disdain for God. And listen, you don't have to be brilliant to see this in others. You just need to be a parent, right? That that when you look at your two-year-old, that you give them a command that communicates in reality love to them, provision, protection for them, and they look back with this with this look of, you've got to be a complete moron if you think I'm going to do that, right? You know that look? Okay, now this is what's really amazing, or most amazing, is that this is exactly how we look at God when we're born. This is what man, apart from Christ, this is how we see God. Okay, now this is communicated in Romans chapter 8. And let me read this to you. It's going to be on the screen for you. But this is what Paul means when he says this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
It's not neutral. You see this? It's not that we're just kind of all coexisting and all kind of living together in a happy world. It's that we are hostile to God, that we are hard-hearted in our view of God, that our hearts, when they look at God, they think evil thoughts. They don't want God in their life. They stiff arm God. If they could put God over the gun barrel and pull the trigger, they would do that willingly. If they had the capacity to completely rid the world of God, they would do it. This is the flavor of our heart apart from Christ, apart from God doing something in us. It was really interesting. A few weeks ago, God providentially put a person in my life, and this is how we were introduced. What do you do for a living? I responded, I'm a pastor. He responded, well, you're probably going to hate me. I'm an atheist. Okay, so we're off on good grounds, right? And so uh, so I just asked the question, you know, why, why are you an atheist? And so he literally, at that point, he goes into his, and he's got a good case, right? He goes into his case for why belief in God is irrational. So he's got like 93 arguments that, that he's really thought out and, and kind of living in. And in the middle of that, we're just having a dialogue. I'm just trying to give thoughtful responses back. And in the middle of all that, at, at one point, I, I just kind of reinserted into the conversation. I said, you know, it doesn't seem to me like your problem is rational. It doesn't seem to me that it's like based on these 94 arguments, that that's why you don't believe God or in God. It seems to me that, that you have a problem with God, that you don't want there to be a God. And I thought his response was just really interesting. He, this, this is what he said back. He said, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I don't want there to be a God. I've lived independent all of my life. I don't want to depend on anyone for anything, including God. And so you see this flavor of a heart apart from Christ? That is in you when you're born. You might have not said those words, but that lies in you. And all it takes is, it, like I love one, one old writer, he, he compares our heart to like a sleeping nest of vipers. And all it takes is for God to throw a rock in there and we start hissing from the inside, right? But that's all it takes is for God to cross you in some way and you see that come out of us. That this is the idea. This is this hostility that we have toward God, that we would look at God and say, you are my enemy. This is the heart of men apart from God. Now, I think this is interesting. If you try to answer the question, why is it that men apart from Christ have this hostility toward God? Jonathan Edwards, he was probably one of the, the greatest theologians in American history. He was a pastor in the 1700s in, in New England. And he wrote this article, kind of this long sermon, that uh, was, was called, Men, Natural Men Are Enemies with God. Pretty creative title, right? And so uh, and here's what he says to answer this question. Why, why is it that men naturally hate God? Like, what's their problem with God? Here's his response to that question. He says this, the general reason is, and it's going to be on the screen for you, is that God is opposite to them in the worship of their idols. Now think about this one for a second. That God is opposite to them in the worship of their idols. Men, all men, will necessarily have something that he respects as his God. If man does not give his highest respect to God that made him, there will be something else that has the possession of it. Men will either worship the true God or some idol. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. Something will have the heart of men, and that which a man gives his heart to may be called his God. Okay, so here's what he's saying. He's saying that all men worship. You worship. You have faith in something. It's just a matter of what do you have faith in. And either you have it in God or you have it in a created thing that the Bible would call an idol. But we all look to something for life and enjoyment and fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning. Every person on the planet does. And, And so he goes on to say that apart from God doing something in us, Our heart has been so bent with the fall in Genesis 3, the effects of sin, that we never look to God for our source of life and satisfaction. That men apart from God will always look to something else. Okay, now this is what he goes on to say. That which a man chooses for his God, he sets his heart mainly upon. And, And listen to this. And nothing will so soon excite enmity or hostility as opposition to that which is dearest to that man. 
A man will be the greatest enemy to him who opposes him in what he chooses for his God. Natural men are enemies to God because he, God, is opposite to them in that in which they place their all. He's opposite to them in their idol. If you go to take away that which is very dear to a man, nothing will provoke him more. You see what he's saying? He's saying that we all, when we are born, we place these idols above God that we are looking to for life and satisfaction. And God stands before us and says this, I will coexist with no idol of yours. Every idol that you have must be put to death. And we look at that and it's threatening. It creates in us this, no, I will not do that. You are standing between me and what I'm placing my life on. I will not give that up freely. I love how one, one pastor equates it to a mama bear with her cubs. And we would all say, I mean, you just watched a little bit of Discovery Channel. We would all say that it's not a good thing to be in between a mama bear and her cubs, right? That's a bad day. You're about to see the other side of mama bear, right? This is about to be the evil side. This is about to be the hostile side. This is about to be the side that will kill you if you get in between mama bear and her cubs. And and this is essentially what he's saying. that, That here's what happens when we're born. We place these idols in our life that we're looking to for life and satisfaction, and they're like our little cubs. And God stands between us and them and looks at those cubs and says, they will be dead. They will be done away with. And we look at him with hostility. No, they won't. I will kill you before you kill those cubs. See the problem here? This is why we have declared war on God. Men apart from God view God as the enemy. We have hostile hearts toward God. Okay, now now this is the second piece of, of this God as enemy. It's not just that we view God as enemy. It's that he views us as enemy. See, our major problem is not that we have a problem with God. It's that God has a problem with us. See that? That when God looks at us, he's not neutral. When God looks at us, he's not kind of, oh, well, they're okay. He's not that. Okay, get this imagery in your mind of the the armies are on the field. God's here. Satan is there. We are in the wrong army and we are sitting in this uniform with the wrong commander and we are sharpening our sword for the slaughter. We have taken our guns and strapped them to our back and we have declared that no prisoners will be taken. We are unmovable in that. We can't be talked down from that. We are in to the death. Okay, now think about this. God does not look at that heart with peace. He doesn't look at that heart and say, you know what? I think we're all okay. He at the same time looks at us with hostility. There is not a God is neutral. There is not a I'll walk the middle road. It is lines have been drawn and it's not just that God is our enemy. It's that we are now the enemy of God. And this is what you see in Ephesians chapter two, where in verse three, he says, you are children of wrath. You are, think about this, you are objects of wrath. That's what you are. This is in in Romans chapter 5 where God's going to say that you are enemies. Do you see this picture? That that we've got to get this straight in our mind that apart from the gospel, there there is severe hostility between us and God. There is no truce to be had. There is hatred that goes on. Okay, now let me, let me show you, and we could literally spend all morning here, but let me just give you a couple of passages in the New Testament that shows this, that God is not impartial, that God is not neutral toward us apart from the gospel. Okay, look at this in 2 Thessalonians 1. These are going to be up on the screen for you. You can write them down, whatever you want to do. He says this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, okay, so when he comes back with his angels, in flaming fire. And here's what it says he's going to do. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Do you see this? That this is not a pretty picture? Apart from the gospel, that it is bad news for everybody. Apart from the gospel, we lose. Apart from the gospel, that God runs over us with his wrath. Okay, this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
That is not a great picture. Would we all agree? I don't like that picture. I don't want that picture. Okay, this is Matthew chapter 13. The Son of God will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not a pretty picture. All agreed? It's not a pretty picture. Okay, consider this in Revelation 6. This is when these judgments of God are being pronounced in the last days. Listen to what it says. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And listen to what they called out. Calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of wrath has come and who can stand can you see this picture this is the testimony of the scriptures as it relates to the hostility that we have toward god and god has toward us okay now listen to this if you do not see the severity of this situation you will never see the wonder of grace if you do not see the desperation if you do not see the separation, if you do not see the bitterness of the hostility, you will never taste the sweetness of the gospel of peace. See that? Okay, so so this is the first thing, that we've got to see God as enemy. That when we are born, there is hostility that abounds. But isn't it a great thing that we have a gospel that makes peace? See, this is the gospel of peace. This is why Paul highlights this. It's an aspect of the gospel. He is saying that in the gospel, God sends Jesus behind enemy lines. We are sharpening our sword for the slaughter. There will be no prisoners taken. And God does for us what we never wanted to do. God does for us something that we never even thought about doing. God sends Jesus behind enemy lines, listen to this, to broker peace between enemies. This is the gospel. That God reinserts himself, sends Jesus into the fray, into the battle where he is slaughtered on the cross to make peace between enemies. See the beauty of the gospel? Okay, so this is how this plays out. There's two types of peace that we get in the gospel. Or actually, there's a lot, but here's two primary ones. The, the first one is peace with God. That in the gospel, we have peace that's created between a hostile God and his people. This is why in Romans chapter 5 it says this, that through our faith in Jesus that we're justified. We're justified through faith. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. This is the idea of the gospel of peace, that in the gospel God brokers this. In the gospel God sends Jesus on a peace-creating mission. He justifies us. Okay, now, I just want to encourage you to stop and think about that. It's so easy just to glance over this, that in the gospel, God justifies us. The penalty, the hostility of our sin is gone, and peace is created. Peace between an all-powerful, all-consuming creator and governor of the universe is created. You see what the gospel does for you? It, the gospel of peace justified. You can know, you can lay your head down tonight knowing your sin has been dealt with. Peace has been brokered. See, it, the gospel of peace justifies us. This is why Martin Luther commenting on this, he said, if Christ is your savior, you immediately have a gracious God. He is no longer, he no longer considers you an object of wrath, but an object of affection. See the gospel of peace here? This is what it does for you and what it does for me. That, that we no longer have um, a, a, a hard Savior, but a gracious God. He goes on to say this. To behold God in the gospel is to see a father's friendly heart. See that? This is what the gospel of peace does. It takes a hostile enemy called God and turns him in to a fatherly figure. Okay, so the, the gospel of peace justifies. Now think about what else it does. It also creates this assurance. Okay, now, now think about how this plays out. The gospel of peace not only gives you an assurance that your sin has been dealt with in the past, 
all your past sin, but it gives you assurance that all of your sin in the present has been dealt with. And all of your sin in the future has been dealt with. The gospel of peace gives you this firm foundation, this steady assurance that God is irrevocably, 100% for you. He is now a father. You are a son and daughter, and he gives good gifts to his kids. It gives you this assurance. J.C. Ryle commented on this. I think it's one of the best just quotes on what assurance produces in the heart of a believer through the gospel of peace. Listen to what he says. Assurance goes so far to set a child of God free from all sorts of painful bondage. It enables a child of God, if you're in the gospel, it enables you to feel free, uh, to, to feel that the great business of life is a settled business. See what it does? This assurance of the gospel of peace, that the great businesses of life, the primary one has been settled. The great debt is a paid debt. The great disease, a healed disease. The uh, the great work, a finished work. And all other businesses, diseases, deaths, and works are then by comparison so, so small. In this way, assurance makes him a person in the gospel that's got this gospel of peace. It makes him patient in tribulation. See what it does? It makes him calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrows, not afraid of evil tidings, in every condition content, for it gives him, look at this, a fixedness of heart. It makes him always feel that he has something solid under his feet and something firm in his hands. A sure friend, by the way, and a sure home at the end. This is what assurance does for you. In the gospel of peace, you have assurance that God is and will forever be for you. And think about this, the gospel of peace, it gives you a secure future. When the Bible speaks of heaven, it's almost like, I like C.S. Lewis kind of refers to this, it's almost like the leaves of the pages of scripture just give us rumors of what it will be like. That it's an indescribable reality. And the gospel of peace secures that for you. The gospel of peace settles your forever destination. It gives you hope of a secure and firm and a great future. This is what the gospel of peace gives you. So, so think about how this plays out. Now we can say with Paul in, in second or in first Corinthians four that, that these slight momentary afflictions, and you almost just want to stop and say, Paul, you're calling slight momentary afflictions getting beaten getting left for dead because people have pummeled you with rocks. You're in prison and you're calling those slight momentary afflictions. How are you doing that? And here's his response. Because I'm weighing that, I'm comparing that to this future glory that's going to be revealed. You see what this does for us? When, when this gospel of peace becomes a reality in our heart, a settled assurance over our heart, when we see that it secures everything that we need most in life, it gives us this very, this very sure and solid foundation by which to live. When everything in life is being stripped from you, when sufferings and tragedies abound, it gives you this firm foundation. This is the gospel of peace. Okay, now I want you to consider this. Here's the second kind of peace it gives you. Not only peace with God, but it gives you the peace of God. We would all say, we read this, Kevin read this a minute ago, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We would all say that we want that verse. Be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind. We would all say we want that. We would all say we want a steadiness in the, in the midst of life's storms, right? We would all say that in the midst of, of persecution and tribulation and distress and all these things, that we have this firmness about us. Okay, this is the peace of God talked about in Philippians 4. This peace of God. We would all say we want that. Okay, now I want you to, to make sure you make this connection. The peace of God is dependent upon peace with God being a reality in your heart. And the reason that many of us do not live with the peace of God is because we have not sunk our roots deeply into peace with God. 
You see what I'm trying to say there? That for you to live with the peace of God in your life, you have to do heavy thinking about peace with God in your life. This is the idea. Okay, now now let me make the last point on this. Peace with God, this gospel peace, it's what readies you for war. Gospel peace readies you for the conflict. This is what it does for you. It gives you this firm foundation. Um, I was reminded this week of, of this story. It's, it's A guy named Stephen Neal writes about it in the history of Christian missions. And he's chronicling the, the spread of the gospel into Japan. And it was making great advancements in the 1500s. And the emperor finally looked at it and said, that's a little too threatening. We're going to have to stamp this out. And so he, he stamps it out with utter brutality. And so they had a a wide range of ways they would kill Christians, persecute Christians, take care of the Christian movement within Japan. And and Stephen Neal, he he chronicles this one story of the the Japanese kind of leaders. They, They grouped up 70 Christians. They crucified them upside down at low tide. And so when the tide comes in, they were all, these 70 Christians crucified upside down were drowned. Now, if you've got an imagination, that should bust your heart open. Because if you've got just, if you've got an imagination that can see the sights and sounds and smells of that, you've got a dad next to his wife with his daughters around him as tide comes in. Right? All they had to do is recant. Say no. Say who cares? Say we'll follow whatever God you want us to follow. That's all they had to do. But they didn't. And what gives you this sort of firm foundation? This sort of a foundation you can plant your life on. Paul's saying this is what gives it to you. It's this gospel of peace that makes you spiritually athletic. That makes you agile. That gives you this firm foundation that regardless of the assaults of Satan, that you can stand on that. It's what makes us, it's what gives us the capacity to stay along with Paul in Philippians 1. To live as Christ. If I go on living great, this means great things. We can do this. There's more work to accomplish. But here's the thing. If you kill me, it, it robs nothing from me because to die is gain. The gospel of peace secures that for you. It gives this firm foundation. Okay, now, now Spurgeon kind of commenting on this. Let me read this quote to you that he says about how this makes you ready for war. It makes you a good pilgrim, as he's going to call it. Listen to what he says. A sense of perfect peace with God, that we are at perfect peace with God, is the grandest thing in all the world with which to travel through life. Let a man know that his sins are forgiven for Christ's sake that he is reconciled to God by the death of his son, and that between him and God there is no ground of difference. And what a joyful pilgrim he becomes. When we know that as the Lord looks upon him uh, upon him or us, his glance is full of infinite, undivided affection, that he sees us in Jesus Christ as cleansed from every speck of sin, and that by virtue of a complete atonement we are forever reconciled to God. Then, when we see that, this peace with God, when we see that, then do we march through life without fear, booted and bushkined for all the difficulties of the way, ready to plunge without fear through fire and water and thorn and thistle. A man at peace with God dreads neither the ills of life nor the terrors of death. Poverty, sickness, persecution, and pain have lost their sting when sin is pardoned, when peace has been brokered. What is there that a man needs to fear when he knows that everything comes, everything that comes from the hand, from the Father's hand and works for his everlasting good? You see this picture? That when we are confident of the gospel of peace, it secures our footing. It, it puts us firm and secure everything we need to live with and to die with. This is the gospel of peace. Okay, now this takes us to verse 16. Look at it. Verse 16, in all of, in all circumstances, this is going to be remedy number four. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So this is remedy number four, this idea of the shield of faith. Okay, now, now picture again with Paul what he's trying to link here. He's taking this big, massive concept of faith, and he's saying, what would that be like in the Roman soldier's attire? What, what, would this, what can we hang this on? And he looks at this shield, and he says, that's a good candidate. Let's go with that. So now think of this Roman shield. This probably isn't what you think of when you think of shield. This would be more similar to a door. We're talking two and a half foot wide, four and a half feet tall. It's something that you can hide your body behind. It is something that you can bend down, protects all of you. Okay, so picture this idea. You're in combat. The, the arrows have been launched. You look up at the sky and it is on fire with flaming arrows. Now just picture yourself in that moment. Are you going to say this? Hey, where's the sword? Will somebody give me my sword? Are, are you going to say, where's the belt? I, I need the, I mean, we've got arrows coming. Give me the belt. Are you going to say, where's the breastplate? I mean, in, in the moment where arrows are about to be flung down and impale me, where's my breast? You're not going to say that. You know what you're going to run to? You're going to say, where is this door? Where is this shield that I can put over my head that, that, that consumes, extinguishes, absorbs all these flaming arrows of the evil one. And Paul's looking at that and he's saying, this is the role of faith in a Christian's life. This is what faith is. It is this door that takes every assault of Satan, that takes every flaming arrow and absorbs the brunt, extinguishes the flame. This is faith. Okay, so, so let me just say, make a couple observations here. Number one is when you read this passage, the enemy's arrows are assumed. So I, I think Paul's got a goal here of making us aware that arrows are coming for you. I, to give us an awareness of the days are dangerous. That, that you are going to have arrows shot at you. You're going to have flaming arrows lobbed at you. Tragedy will strike. Cancer is a reality. Right? I mean, so these arrows are coming your way and we need to live with an awareness of that. We, we need to live knowing that that is not a surprise for a Christian. That God nowhere promises you an easy life, a pain-free life. Quite the opposite is true. God wants to prepare us knowing that life in a sinful world will always have sinful things. That this is your faith. It's my faith. You live long enough and life will always be bloody. Okay, this is the idea. Paul wants to make sure we know that. Okay, now I think we need to define what are these flaming arrows? Right? Like, what, what are these things? And so here's going to be my, my just statement, and I'm going to read a quote to you to kind of describe this. But like, I think that the idea of it's, it's all the ways that Satan assaults Christians. It's all the ways he comes at you. It's all the ways of his plots and ploys and schemes against you. This is what Sinclair Ferguson kind of commenting on this says. Paul here puts his finger, these flaming arrows, on a sinister and often profoundly distressing experience well ca- uh, cataloged in the, in the history of the, of the church. It's a sudden and unexpected attack on the mind, on the thoughts, on the affections of the believer that weakens him, creating shame and spiritual paralysis and terror. So, so these flaming arrows are just the ways, that the plethora of ways that Satan will come after you. So, so we could put this in the context of temptation. We could put this in the context of accusation. We could put this in the context of Job. You remember how he comes after Job? With severe suffering. Under the leash of God and the control of God, Satan strips Job of everything he held dear. I mean, severe suffering. Tragedy. I mean, this is cancer has been pronounced. This is you get the call and it's your loved one that is dead. I mean, this is, this is all of these things. The flaming darts of the arrow one. And here's what, here's what Paul's saying. That the shield of faith is what extinguishes these arrows. It is what deals with these arrows. That the shield of faith, standing under this shield of faith is how we combat these things. How we survive these things. How we thrive in these things. The shield of faith does that for us. Okay, so I, I want you to hear this. I want you to make this connection here. Super important. Your behavior is always based on what you believe. It's always based on, listen to this, what you have faith in. You act according to your faith. You live out what you believe. 
Okay, this is the idea. So think back to Genesis chapter 3. We, we spent a lot of time in there over the last few weeks. But when you go to Genesis chapter 3, this is what Satan does. His arts are not levied at their behavior, but at their belief. He calls into question the character of God, the commands of God. Are you sure you want to follow that? Are you sure that really makes sense? Are you sure God's not selling you up the river? Are you sure God has your best at mind? Are you sure he hadn't sold you out? See, it's levied at his belief. So, so maybe you can think about it this way. The primary issue of Genesis 3 is not in them eating or not eating fruit. The primary issue of Genesis chapter 3 is does Adam and Eve trust God? That's the issue. And here's what the shield of faith means. It means when the arrows are lobbed. It means in the evil day that we place our faith, we throw our life onto what we know of God in the gospel. This is what it means. That that when Satan throws these accusations, temptations, tragedy, suffering, there's always two voices when when this happens. There is this voice like Satan that says, are you sure about that? Are you sure God is trustworthy? And then there is this great God that says, I am a good father to you. Trust me. And the shield of faith is standing up under the voice of God and saying, I am going to throw my life on and hide under what I know of God in the gospel. Okay, so think about what this means to put on the shield of faith. We'll give a couple illustrations and then we're done. And these are just pastoral, just hopes for you here. Let's just put this under the context of suffering. And I'll show you how the shield of faith bridges with the gospel of peace here. My dad, about um, it's been about a year ago now, was diagnosed with leukemia. Now, I want you to think about what happens when you're diagnosed with leukemia. There's two voices that start to speak. Here's voice number one. Are you sure God's trustworthy? Are you sure you can throw your life into God? If you throw your life at God, he's killing you. I mean, don't you see what he's doing? I mean, you you live there and it's going to be for your ruin that you live there. You won't survive if you live there. Now think about how peace, the gospel of peace and the shield of faith work. Here's voice number two. God says we're not enemies. Peace has been brokered. I am a good father to you. Everything that I give you in this life is grace from me. Everything that I'm leading into your life and allowing into your life is grace. It's going to make you more like Jesus. It's going to prepare you for eternity. Everything I'm giving you is for your good. I turn all things for your good. Peace has been brokered. I am for you. I'm not against you. I am trustworthy. I'm with you. I will not abandon you. I'm a good dad to you. And here's what faith does. It takes that gospel of peace and it throws it up over our head and lives under it. You see how that works? Think about anxiety. I I know that some of you struggle with anxiety. I mean, you struggle with, I mean, just freaking out in life, right? just so worried about what about this and what about that. And you see every obstacle is this insurmountable thing and you want to control every little detail of life. And and here's, here's the voices going on within you here. There is this whisper of Satan in the garden, Genesis 3, that's saying this, God is not trustworthy. You need to control. He is not out for you. You better be out for you. You better take the bull by the horns here, right? You better be the commander of this ship. I mean, God, God, God has left you. Can't you see that? That he is no longer here in this. And here comes this whisper of God, the gospel of peace. And he says, I am with you. I am your dad. I am for you. Do you remember Matthew 6? That if I, if, if this is how I feed the birds of the air, would I not much more take care of a son or daughter? If this is how I clothe the grass of the field, Would I not much more clothe you? Trust me. Where is your faith? Pull it out. This this is the idea. This is how we combat that, that first voice of Satan, that whisper in the midst of anxiety. We pull out what we know about God and the gospel, this gospel of peace, and we hold up the shield of faith and we live under it. 
Do you have this ability to discern these voices in the midst of temptation, the midst of accusation, the midst of suffering and tragedy, and to to hear and to believe this voice of God, to live up under it as the shield of faith so that you can stand? You see how this works? When we've got the gospel of peace and we throw up this shield of faith, it makes us immovable. It gives us everything we need to live. It gives us everything we need to die. When we have this settled assurance that God is for us and we believe it, we've held up the shield of faith and trusted it, that then we become part of this Hebrews 11, kind of this catalog of, of Christian heroes. Our name gets etched in to these men of faith who have taken great exploits, who have moved the mission of God forward. And I pray it will be for you and I pray it will be for me. Amen. Let's pray. Daddies, I want to tell you that that I really, man, I, I have this hope for you. That when you hear gospel of peace, that those are not light words to our ladies in here that those are not light words. When you hear the gospel of peace, that those are heavy, soul-bending words for you, right? That you realize that God has moved from an enemy to your good and gracious Father. That now everything that flows from His hand is good for you. Everything is grace to you. He never abandons. He's always there. And that we would be able to lift up this shield of faith and not just know those things, but believe those things. This is what it means to to put on the shield of faith. We know what the Bible teaches about God and the gospel, and we apply them. We trust them in the daily grind of our life. Oh, I have this hope for us that we would do that, that we would get this skill to be able to do that. We would know the gospel with that sort of depth. And so God, I pray that over my brothers and sisters, over these people that I love so much. God, give us the grace to walk in that. Give us the grace to lift up that shield of faith and believe in the belt of truth, the breastplate of Christ's righteousness for us, the beautiful gospel of peace that has brokered peace between you and us, that has turned you into a grace-filled dad, that we would have faith in the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. God, help us in that. We need you in that. We're dependent upon you for that. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.